I did not have to go on this mission. I was supposed to have the night off. However, my greatest fear in life was not death, but rather my team getting in a firefight without me. So when the mission's task organization roster did not include me, I begged our team sergeant to let me go. After pleading my case, he relented. As we flew over the mountaintops in the dark of night, my legs twitched and hands fidgeted on the back of our Chinook helicopter. When the three-minute warning was called, I regretted asking to come on the mission and chided myself for not learning my lesson. I had been in this situation before during our last deployment to Afghanistan. My name was left off the roster, I begged to go, the team sergeant let me go, and the mission turned into a 10-hour firefight in 130-degree heat. It was the hardest and most grueling day I spent in Afghanistan, and for a few terrifying, panic-filled hours, I thought I was going to die. As the knots in my stomach wound tighter, I promised myself that after this mission, I would never pull a stunt like this again. The next time my name was left off the roster, I would gladly accept the night off. The crew called out one minute, and the engines roared dulled as the pilots prepared to land. I took a knee on the floor and grabbed my safety lanyard. I said the Lord's Prayer, a Hail Mary, and instinctively clutched my chest as I prayed to St. Michael. I had worn a St. Michael's medal every day since I graduated the Special Forces course. However, it fell off on the last mission three days prior. 30 seconds was called. The helicopter flared and lowered its backside to the ground. I unhooked my safety lanyard from the floor. The landing jolted me off my knee and into a tangled mess of Afghan commandos that were sent flying from the hard landing. In the chaos and confusion, the selector switch in my rifle went from safe to auto. We quickly gathered ourselves and began shuffling out of the helicopter. And 10 hours later, I met my fate. I was shot in the stomach and my life changed forever. Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by Go Ruck Media. I'm Jason McCarthy here with Rich. Our guest today is Kevin Flake, former Green Beret, now medically retired due to wounds sustained in September of 2011 on his second tour in Afghanistan. After a 10-hour firefight, he was shot in the stomach. He also suffered a fractured hip, damage to his femoral nerve, and was paralyzed on his left side. Since retiring from the Army, as part of his recovery, he's made his big brain even bigger and earned degrees from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and the MIT Sloan School of Management, putting a halo around all of us Green Berets. We hope anyway. He's a good friend of mine, and we serve on the board of directors of the Green Beret Foundation together. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's an absolute honor to be on the show here today. You know, we've, we've had a couple late nights with, with Green Beret Foundation stuff, you know, and so I've gotten pieces of your story, but I really want to just kind of start, I want to start at the beginning, and I want to start like how you grew up, what drew you to service, who were your mentors, stuff like that. Yeah, I think... Especially now, I, mean, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, so I'm thinking so much more of kind of like about my childhood now and what made me really into the person that I am, because I, I think I'm doing all right. I think my wife is doing even better than me, and so I'm like, well, how do we replicate that and give that to our, our children here? And so you know, I'm from a small town in upstate New York called Stillwater. I grew up right next to the Saratoga battlefield from the Revolutionary War. And so it's a very historical area that kind of was always there, ever present, right? This, this history, this, the country, you know, the, the turning point of the revolution, right? That's kind of where I grew up. And that was what we always were, were learning about and had great parents. Um, you know, both parents were at home and my father was an entrepreneur and 
he graduated second to last in his high school class. He didn't finish college, but you know, he said, you know, a lot of people out there, they got money and, and I don't, and I'm going to change that. And so he just set off kind of with this idea and this mindset of this is my goal. I want to work for myself. I want to make money. I want to change the fortunes in my family. And he just put his head down and nothing was going to stop him. Like he knew he could outwork anybody. So typical entrepreneur, you know, starts 10 businesses and finally 10. Yeah. You know, different, you know, paving businesses. You know, he used to be a guy, he would go to the carnivals and he'd be selling balloons and things like that. He was a carny, right? He loves to, he loves to joke about <laughs> these things. Like, you cool. know, he used to go to parades, right? And push a shopping cart around and be selling things out of the shopping cart. And like, typically you would need a license to do it. But, you know, of course he's like, he just shows up without you know, anything and, you know, he's doing everything. And like some of my early childhood memories are going to fairs with him. And he's, you know, working these late nights, selling things out of the back of a van um, to people. And, you know, I can remember that as a very, very young child. Uh, so, you know, I remember that, that, those are two of the businesses that he had. I, so like, I, what, what did that do like at the time and how, or how has that aged? I mean, you talk about your father working really hard. I mean, is that just, how much more sense does that make now than then? Oh, now, it, you know, it makes, it makes a lot more sense to me, you know, in terms of seeing like, and knowing how hard you have to work to attain, to attain big goals. But now that I'm a parent and a husband, I'm like, Oh, wow. Like you have to work really hard. And then you still have all these other factors into it. It's not just about working hard too. Um, and, and so it's been pretty eye opening to me, you know, to be able to, to now be in a position to try to work really hard to achieve my goals. Um, but you know, to understand, I think a little bit better about where my parents came from in terms of what they were dealing with trying to raise a family too. What was the role of your mom? My dad was really, you know, the breadwinner. Um, my mom would support him. She would work for him every once in a while. But mostly, you know, once you have three kids um, and an entrepreneur that's working 80 to 100 hours a week, right? Like something's got to give there. And so my mom really was, you know, raising the family while my father was going out and working, um, you know, these series of businesses. Uh, I mean, did he, did he make you kids carnies too, or, or how did that work? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, when you have a family business, right? I said, there's, there's two ways it's going to work. There's the one where you're going to get an easy pass and, you know, maybe show up for a cush job, or there's the one where you're going to get treated like shit because it's the family business and your dad wants to teach you lessons and he doesn't want people to think that he's showing favoritism. So I got the ladder there, right? Um, you know, I can remember being like 10 years old in my dad's warehouse and the little league field is right next to the warehouse. And, you know, we get a 15 minute break at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I mean, I'm not kidding, man. It was 10 o'clock. Your break starts in 10, 15. It ends. It better not be 10, 16, but I would be out there in the summertime and I'd hear the kids playing at the little league field that I'm like covered in dirt from working and sweating. And I'm like, Oh, wow. I really wish I could go out there and play with those kids, but you know, I'd have to get back into the warehouse and I hated it, man. I hated the summer times growing up, but looking back on it, that was one of the best things that my parents could have done for me. So did you realize that at all at the time? Did you sort of resent your father at all? Oh yeah, I certainly did. Went through serious periods of resentment. I mean, like nobody wants to be working like that when you're that young and it was backbreaking labor. I mean, you're lifting boxes for like eight to 10 hours a day, every day, just, you know, probably walking like 15 miles in that warehouse there. 
And so at the time, it's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like working at like a pizza shop or like an ice cream thing, having like a 1990s after school special summer, right? Like not uh, in a warehouse, uh, you know, working all the time there. I guess the dip, like where I really started to understand the lessons my parents gave me was when I joined the army. And, you know, I had gone from private school from the time that I was 12 till I was 22, uh, grew up very wealthy. And you know, I go to basic training and I see people from all walks of life. And I'm like, wow, like, I can't believe it. Right. I can't believe other people like this existed. I'm this is a bubble here in the Northeast. And for me, I think it really hit home for me. I was in the 18 Charlie course and it's very math intensive, tons of formulas. And, you know, having my, my educational bathroom, I would spend a lot of time helping the, like a lot of the guys like work on the math. I remember teaching one of the guys. I was like, yeah, one times three is the same as three times one. And he didn't know that. And it like baffled his mind. And I, I took a step back and I, I didn't think the guy was stupid by any means, but it just kind of made me say to myself, like, wow, like think of like the background that you have and, and the, the life your parents provided you. you. You just had these different opportunities in life that most people aren't afforded. And it made me realize just how incredible my life was and the upbringing was. But I will say, right, like when we get to the portion of the course where we're doing construction, the roles reverse. That guy's teaching me how to hang plywood. And he's looking at me like I'm an idiot because I've never done anything like that in my life. Yeah, I had those same exact moments. You know, I'd been to college and I had this this overthinking college brain, right? Like I knew my multiplication tables, whoop de doo you know? Yeah. Then all of a sudden there's these guys and they're just running circles around me. And not not even just in specific instances, but just in overall real world problem solving, which you can, you can overcome a lot of weaknesses. If, if you just commit to kind of, Hey, we're out here and there's a tactical exercise, like an ambush or a raid or whatever. And you have to lead people and you have to come up with a plan. You know, it was humbling. And, and it was also one of those instances where I was forced to adapt to their kind of smart as well. And so it made me smarter by making me make decisions faster or like all of those kinds of things, like the army was just an invaluable education. And anybody that kind of doesn't see that because there's not a quote degree attached, I think is missing a big component of what the definition of smart is. Oh, completely agree. And like when I went through training, you know, you think you're just kind of getting training to go to war. But what I didn't really understand, I've, I've came to realize it later is like SF training was preparing me for life. <laughs> And preparing me to think outside of the box, to lead, to overcome problems, to set, continue to set big goals. I mean, like just everything that we went through there, I find invaluable in kind of my recovery and just life in general now. Okay. So let's talk about how you and your big, smart brain ended up enlisting in the, in the United States Army. Yeah. So I, I, I mentioned earlier, very fortunate and it was very fortunate to have uh, my parents. They sent me to an all boys Catholic military school. And similar to spending my summers in the warehouse working for my father, I didn't feel very fortunate at the time. It's the trifecta of all boys Catholic and military. Uh, but I went there from seventh to 12th grade. And the message that I took from that place was really like love God, love country and put others above yourself. And so that was really ingrained in my mind in this environment. And one day during military science class, and we're sitting there and we get to watch that famous Discovery Channel Navy SEAL Hell Week video, right? And half the class is staring out the window because they're 14 and they don't give a shit. And the other half of the class is like, why would anybody want to do that? 
And then here's me sitting there be like, that's awesome. I want to do that with my life right there. And so at 14, that kind of just set this fascination with special operations, right? The camaraderie, the barrier to entry, the dangerous missions, uh, just this ability to go out and test yourself. And so that was my fascination and kind of it was fostered, especially at this you know, military school. And I started saying to myself, like, this is, this is the way that you can put others above yourself. This is the way that you can serve God, serve country. And 9-11 happens in my senior year. And so all of a sudden, it goes from this fascination to a duty to, to serve. And so I went to college upon graduation at Union College, a small Northeastern Liberal Arts School. Uh, but from day, like the day, first day I set foot on the campus, I'm like, when I graduate, I'm joining the military. I wanted to do this since I was 14, 9-11's happened, I got to do this. I was a poli-sci major there. And so you can imagine, right, it's 02 to 06. We're talking about this all the time. And at this Northeastern Liberal Arts School, I was very much in the minority to support both of the wars and was, was super vocal about it in my classes. And so it started out as this fascination. It started out as what I felt like my duty. And now I'm like supporting something that has such grave consequences as war. I'm like, look, man, if you don't get out there and put your money where your mouth is, then you're a pretty big hypocrite at this point. It's funny how that does actually motivate you, right? Like if you're going to talk about these things, at least I felt the same way. I mean, I graduated from college and then I was very much for revenge. Yeah. The, the revenge that was going down in Afghanistan. And there was obviously more to it than just revenge, but you know, that was my motivation and like, you got to do your part. Right. And I think like, I remember distinctly in one of my classes, we were talking about Sudan and you know, one of the kids was continuously advocating, we have, there has to be intervention in Sudan, we have to intervene, we have to intervene. So finally, I'm like, look, man, if we do put boots on the ground, are you going to join the army and go to the Sudan? And, you know, the person tried to dance around the topic a little bit, like, no, 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 just answer my question. If we go to the Sudan, are you going to join the army to go there? The answer was no. I'm like, all right, so this conversation's over then, right? Like, <laughs> Stop advocating for something like this that has these consequences and not be able to back it up like this. Yeah, there's something about being that age too, you know? Like you're a military-aged male. I, I remember, I, you know, I looked back at what, you know, I'm, I'm pointing to my left right now. Like what the guys that did before us, and he'll point to the guys who stormed the beaches at Normandy, and there's this call. And part of it is timing. You know, if 10 years later you're going through college and your life is what it is now, what happens? right? It's, it's a lot harder, you know, yeah. it's a lot harder. You're 35 and you've, you've missed your date. Right. But when I just felt like I was 22 when I graduated college and I, I had to go, I had to do something to serve my country. Yeah. I mean, I felt the same exact way. And I'm sure you're in a similar situation where you kind of announced to family and friends, like, all right, I'm going to join the military. Oh, by the way, I'm going to try out for the Green Berets. Like, yeah, I don't know, like 10 or 15% of people make it, but don't worry, I'll be one of those guys, you know, you know me. And all of a sudden, everybody starts thinking and telling you what you should do with your life. And, you know, everybody's coming out of the woodwork and can't understand why you want to do this during a time of war. Why do you want to do the special forces? You should go be an officer. You're walking away from a family business that's doing $20 million in revenue a year. Are you crazy? Um, but it's something that when you have that passion, when you have that deep down inside of you, when you know that's exactly what you need to be doing with your life, but like you got to follow that path. And like that, that lesson was so evident to me after doing it and graduating the Q course. And 
I just realized in that moment, like I, I never wanted to not follow my gut, never wanted to not follow my passion because the last thing I want to have to do is live with the regret of that decision. One of the things I hear you saying, Kevin, is back in those summers when you were slaving away in the, in the warehouse and all the other guys were out there, probably the guy from Sudan was out there playing little league ball while you were in the warehouse. But your father was instilling in you a spirit. It's kind of an ethereal thing, but it's a spirit of, of service. It's a spirit of knowledge of what has gone before, what's been in this country, history, all of it combined. But it creates a spirit that drives you to do things like join the Army. Uh, you, you mentioned the fact that when you had decided you were going to join the Army and you announced it. I remember when I did that, there was like a vacuum. There was like dead silence. And I, I was just getting stares. And then all of a sudden, just like you, people were, oh, well, you know, you should go to college. Because I was working for Pacific Northwest Bell as a, as a cable splicer or a lineman or something at the time. And they said, oh, you know, you've got a great job. You can, you can go back to school. You can go to school nights. You can become an officer. You can do all these wonderful things. No, I didn't want that. I wanted to go serve, and I wanted to serve then. I didn't know what was driving me, but I, I think I learned later that it came from that, that spirit of history, of work, of ethical proportions that my family had taught me, my family, my friends, and my mentors. And it, it really pushed me, just like you got pushed, to, to do the right thing, even though it was against the flow, if you will, of what people around you thought. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's it's funny because the biggest supporter that I actually had throughout all this was my mother, like the person that you would think would be the biggest attractor. And I think it kind of just goes with with everything you were mentioning about kind of this work ethic, the spirit, the history of things. Like kind of like I grew up, my family was the American dream, right? Poor to multimillionaires. And it was a lot of it due to the work ethic and vision of my father. It was also due to my mother's belief in him, you know, that he was going to be able to go out and do this. And then the belief in her children that she installed, like, I believe in your father and I'm going to install this level of belief in you so that you can go out and achieve these things. Right. And so she would say, like, every day before we left, you're a flight, you're an achiever, right? Kiss us on the cheek and send us to school. Like you're you know, you're gonna get out there. You don't you're not owed anything. You're gonna get after it. You're gonna go out and achieve things. In, in her past life, your mother lived in Sparta. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right. So, because I, I had a similar path, right? I mean, went to college and then enlisted to go into yeah. special forces, and that that was not a happy moment. I, I did something a little bit differently. I, I just didn't tell anybody, and then I told them I'm leaving in four weeks or whatever it was, and. Yeah. That four weeks was pretty rough, but I think that I, I spared myself some real build-up stress. So that was probably a good answer. That's a technique. It is a technique. <laughs> I, I don't know that there's a perfect one when there's body bags coming home. And I, and I say that with with reverence for those who are serving and and for, frankly, anyone who's willing to to commit to continue the, to, to serve our nation when you know that that could be your life. Like that could yeah. be, that could be it. So- you know, you talked about your dad and the influences he had and the influences that your mother had. Can you pick out any other mentors through your school years that you looked at that helped fan the flame, if you will, of your of your spirit and of your passion to to do what you did? You know, I think the, the comment of uh, 
you know, it, it takes a village is so true. And it'd be tough to pinpoint like, one specific person because the small town that I grew up in was amazing, incredible coaches, incredible teachers. You know, the high school that I went to, there were so many people I looked up to. Um, if I had to boil it down to, to maybe two people, I, I, for high school, I'd pick a coach, my coach Al Rapp. Um, he was my high school football coach for two years. Um, we were number four in the state in my junior year, number 10 in my senior year. No big deal. Just going to throw that out there. Um, but uh, he taught me a lot about discipline, a lot about pursuing your dreams. He really fed into this love God, love country, put others above yourself. Uh, so really owe a lot to him. And uh, another teacher, his name was Jim Iverone. He was my religion teacher in ninth grade and, you know, really kind of helped me kind of explore and pick apart my, my relationship with God and, and service. Uh, and so those two men, I'd say for my high school years, were probably the most impactful outside of my parents. Right now, transitioning to, to the Q course where it's time to get back to moving boxes and other things for 18 hours a day and wh whatever the case may be. Wh what was it like for you, knowing that you signed up for war and that it was coming? And I think for me, like that's, was a big driver in signing up. In 2007, I went to basic training in March of that year. I had this great fear that the wars would pass me by. I wasn't gonna get my chance to go to war. And so I, I wanted to get through training as fast as I possibly could to be able to get to you know what I viewed as kind of like the pinnacle, right? The Super Bowl, the Olympics. You know, you've been training for so long for this thing. You know, just wanted to get to war as fast as possible. But knowing, right, that as soon as you either like graduated basic training or washed out of the Q course or graduated the Q course, no matter what, it was like your your reward was always going to be at that time a, a trip to Iraq or Afghanistan. So for me, that added a significant level, not I wouldn't say of urgency, but just like you have to take all of this incredibly serious because you like very quickly you're going to be applying this in a real world situation. And so I think for me, it just made me take things even more seriously in a sense of like, I was going to commit 110% to this. So, so what was your motivation? I mean, for me, it was revenge. Yeah. And, and that evolved right into sort of service and the guy to my left and the guy to my right. But like, I wanted to be the dude on the mountaintop hunting bin Laden down. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, same thing. And like, I was in Afghanistan when bin Laden was killed and I'll never forget. Kadri Ricky V walks into the ops in, you know, his big goofy, like massive head bobbin. He's like size nine and a half head. Yeah, right? <laughs> He's like, ah, bin Laden's just been killed. And I'm like, shut up, Rick. Like, you know, Rick's been playing jokes on me for three years at this point. And he's like, no, 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 check it out. And, you know, we wait like five minutes for the internet to load up. And I was like, holy shit, Bin Laden really was killed. And so my first reaction was like, hey, can we go home now? And they're like, no, no, <laughs> it's not working that way. But then, uh, like, I remember being mad because I was like, man, I wanted to be the one that sought some retribution on that guy. And you always kind of held out hope it would be you. But, uh, yeah, so I think retribution and revenge was a, a huge motivator for me to do this. Right. And I don't think it wasn't just that, but it was like the, the, the fascination that I developed kind of this mythical place that I put special operations on from the time that I was 14 that made me really want to be a part of this. And I, I just saw, you know, I was raised in a family with the history, the military, World War Two, Korea, all these guys. And I just was like, well, this is this is just your time to answer the call. Like, this is your generation's war. 
Okay. So when was your first trip to Afghanistan? 2010. What did, what did fear feel like to you? It felt real <laughs> for sure. And I think if anybody says that they're not scared is absolutely full of shit. Like I was terrified on numerous occasions. And you know, a lot of times I was just scared that I would make the wrong decision. And not so much for myself that like I would get killed. I was more scared of making the wrong decision so someone else would get killed or someone else would get hurt. I was scared to let people down. Um, and that that was real fair for me. But you know, there are some nights that I can remember just after a firefight, for instance, and uh, early on in our first deployment, we landed and an hour later, other the cover of darkness, we got attacked by 60 people. It's like something unreal that I never thought would possibly happen. And how many of you are there? There's probably 115, 120 of us. Uh, luckily, had some really good aerial support. We had the high ground. And there were like Cadre Ricky V's to my right on the high ground there. There's a, a village right in the middle of it. And an hour into it, Ben Wise, who was, was killed uh, at the end of the deployment, you know, near ambush. He shoots a guy like 10 feet away. There's another guy that said, you know, they, they did a little L-shaped ambush and that just kind of kicked the night off. And then this horde comes through this valley at us. The support by fire positions are going crazy. We have the Apache helicopters, people fighting it out on the western side of the valley. And after a couple hours, that kind of quelled. Right? The sun comes up. We finish clearing the valley. We call for a halt. And then we're going to start the movement again at night. And I will never forget the fear that I felt when that sun slipped away from my view. And I knew it was time to, to clear through that kill zone there. Every step that I took, I just was waiting for something crazy to happen, for somebody to, like the boogeyman to just come out. Like, I felt like I was a kid again. That, to me, that's what fear was. Like, I felt like I was a kid again, and I was scared shitless of the dark, like a monster was going to come out and get me. An hour into that, 20 guys on bikes tried to come up to our rear and, and take us out from the village near us. Luckily, the combat controller saw like a little glint of a light and uh, ordered an, an A-10 to take care of those guys. But like to be walking through that valley with that fear, the A-10 going in the background and literally stumbling over dead bodies that had been festering in the sun. Uh, that to me was, was probably one of the scariest nights of my life. And I had never been so happy in my life to see the sun come up that next morning. And it was like, I felt kind of like the boogeyman went away. The monster went away. I, I can see a little bit now. It was almost like react to contact out of the gates, right? You, you don't have time to think as much. Yeah. Movement to contact for those of you out there. That means that you're, you're looking to go after people that will, you know, identify themselves by shooting at you or identify themselves as bad guys usually means they have guns and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, right. And it's just, you know, you're there, you're, you're just in the middle of, it. you're just fighting for your life with, with your brothers to your left and right. And then you've got to, you've got to process all of that, everything that happened. And like, what, what's the definition of courage? You know, it's not, not being scared. It's saddling up anyway. And, and you've got to, you've got to eat that shit in your stomach. I think that's a great point, Jason. It's like, during when the moment when the bullets were flying, 
I didn't necessarily feel the fear because it was more of like a muscle memory thing. It's like, you know, what you have to do your command and control. You're so busy. There's so many things going on. I'm trying to maneuver commandos. It's when the bullets stop. Like for me, that's when the fear would really kind of seep into the situation. I'd start to think about, holy shit, like that just happened. Right. And that, that to me is kind of when I'd start to process it. That's when the fear would come in. So what was the evolution then like for you over the course of, of that first deployment? Do you get comfortable with this or do you get more used to it? Do you learn how to control yourself more or, or what was that like? The first deployment, we did both of our deployments to Kunduz. Um, so we did one in 2010 for seven months. So basically January to August, we came home on a Friday and, you know, by Monday, they're like, hey, good job, guys. You're going back to Afghanistan in seven months. And by the way, it's going to be the longest special operations deployment of the war. You're going for 11 months. I haven't heard of that till now. Yeah, I they, well, it was a, it was a one time deal. I think that they realized it was not a, a very good thing for for people's mental state to do. But you know, in the seven months off, we had to go to Thailand for five weeks. We had two training iterations. I mean, my team was going to spend eighteen out of twenty four months in Afghanistan doing movement to contacts with the Afghan commandos, and then you know, spend another couple. We we would only be home for like three months in two years. So I want to talk about in between your deployments. Then, yeah, I want to introduce your wife a little bit into the story and talk about what that was like. Like, how, how did you two meet? And then we're going to get to the, the Vibram Five Finger Death Punch story. Wow, oh, yeah. So my, uh, my wife, she lived on the second floor of my dorm. And one of her roommates was a friend of mine from home. Lucky her, right? Yeah. <laughs> a little did she know what she was getting herself into. And, you know, there's four good-looking women in this room. And those four good-looking women, I got friends, and they're going to be in there. So I was like, all right, I know where I'm going to spend my time here. And so, you know, went up there and kind of, you know, did my assessment of everybody. My wife's a redhead. And I was like, well, that, I like that quite a bit there. And she had her high school boyfriend. And, you know, I could tell she was kind of lonely, missed home. And I found out she was from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. She grew up there year round. And I used to go to Cape Cod all the time when I was a kid. I had vacation out there. And so I, I knew I kind of used some art of persuasion. I knew that she was lonely. I knew that she missed home. I knew the Cape. So I would talk to her about Cape Cod and all these things on the Cape and like, you know, drive her into my arms, make her more sad. And, uh, you know, eventually she breaks up with her high school boyfriend, you know, her and I end up together, you know, within a month of being in college, you know, her and I are boyfriend and girlfriend. And that was at 18. We've been together ever since I mean, we got married uh, at 23. She broke up with me for three days when I joined the army. She did not want me to join the army, broke up with me for those three days, but what were those three days like? Um, so, you know, Kimberly and, and uh, you know, her and her uh, roommates, they lived right next to my my uh, apartment. And like a bunch of the guys I lived were dating the girls in her place. And, you know, we've also quickly gotten married. So it was like we were still together because she would still hang out with me every day. She was, <laughs> she said, I'm still broken up with you. You can oh, run, but you can't hide, right? Yeah, we're broken up here. All right. So let's talk about the five finger death punch story. Yeah. You know, so, so we get home from Afghanistan um, in that first deployment. And honestly, man, like two weeks prior to us getting home, he opened up with a, a 10 hour firefight for my life and was so convinced I was going to die in that firefight. Um, by the grace of God, did not get hurt that day, you know, still alive, obviously. So that's kind of like the mental state that I'm coming back to the States with, right? I, 
have this incredibly life altering experience. And then we're just, we're home, um, which is like the cognitive dissonance of that, of, you know, literally fighting for your life and going from this brown barren desert back to the, like the evergreen state of, of, Fort, of, of Washington was, was crazy to me. And I get home and I see my wife and we have to do a hundred percent inventory instead of just going home. Like, you know, we can't have anybody guard the pallets. We have to break everything down on a Friday night. We haven't seen our families in seven months. And so at like three o'clock in the morning, we finally get to go home and I'm so excited. I can't sleep. I'm talking to my wife. We have a 10 minute ride home and I'm trying to pack like seven months into 10 minutes in the car ride home and telling her everything. I'm everywhere. I'm going, she's like, what the hell is going on with this guy? And I'm like, holy shit, this is probably gonna be harder than I thought. You know, she goes to bed. I'm just so excited. I'm home. I can't believe how fast the internet is. I'm like looking at my house. Well, my God, my couch is so comfortable. I can't focus on one thing. Look at the cable. Look at all the channels and the options and the food and everything. And then all of a sudden I have this crazy feeling. I'm like, oh my God, you got to clean your gear. You got to clean your gear. Your gear has got to get clean. Like what if you have to deploy again in like a week? And so I start frantically doing laundry and you know, the sun comes up. Yeah. The, the pager might go off, right? Exactly. Right. It's like <laughs> this mindset. It's not how it works, people. Like on, on a deployment, for me, I made lists of things I wanted to do when I got home. Like that's what kind of kept me sane. And because you're gone for so long and, you know, the, the propensity to have to go right back out the door against special forces, like I'm like, I, I got to start checking things off this list. I want to do it all. I want to do it all this weekend before I go back to work on Monday. So like I wake my wife up. I'm like, hey, we got to go. We got to go to breakfast and you know, I'm doing all, you know, all of these things that I'm trying to do, driving her crazy. I still haven't slept in like two days. I'm just so excited to be back. And for some reason I had these vibrant five fingers on my mind. Like I wanted them so bad from the deployment. I thought about them all the time. And I was like, for some reason, like, if I just get these vibrant five fingers, everything will be right in the world. Like my fitness level will go through the roof. Like I had attached like weird hopes and dreams to these vibrant five fingers. Somewhere, somewhere there is a marketer that is just smiling right now. You know, he's like, I got, to, I got to him. Did their job right there. <laughs> and, you know, a cardinal rule of coming home from deployment is you do not drive for like two or three days at least after him. And so I think, you know, got home on the Friday. On Sunday, I said to my wife, all right, let's go. We're gonna, we're gonna get these uh, five fingers here. I called the REI in Tacoma. They're out of my size. I called the REI in Seattle. They got them, but it's getting super close to closing time. And so I'm like, all right, well, let's just go. Let's saddle up. Let's go. I'll drive. I'll drive up by five. So like, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to get those things the next day. And so, you know, we get onto the road, we're on I-5 and my wife's like, hey, look, I think it's going to close. I don't think we're going to make it up there in time. I'm like, no, 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 don't worry. We're going to make this. We're going to make this. You just tell me where to go and what to do. And I'm like weaving in and out of traffic. Like I'm driving a Humvee in the streets through Afghanistan, honking at people, going over the, the speed limit, like 20 or 30 miles. My wife is like, holy shit, like what is going on today? What are you, we're going to get arrested. I'm like, how oh, to fuck that? I don't care. I'll beat the shit out of the cops if they pull me over. And I was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, Hi. she's like, they're going to close. I'm like, no, they're not. No, they're not. I call REI. I get them on the phone. I'm weaving in and out of traffic on my phone. And I'm like, hey, hey, I just got back from Afghanistan. I need you guys to stay. I need to get these five and five fingers. Like, you guys need to stay up for like 15 more minutes. And they're like, sir, well, we can't do this. This is the flagship REI. It's a massive, massive place. Like, uh, sir, we can't do that. I'm like, well, fuck it, I'll be there then. And I speed up even more. And my wife is like sitting in her seat, like, holy shit, like even more, like what is going on right now? And then we go past the exit. And as soon as we go past the exit, I'm like, 
yeah, we're, we're not going to make it. And I just lost it. Like start crying, screaming, punching the steering wheel as hard as I possibly can, yelling at my wife, like, you're the TC. What the fuck are you doing right now? You're supposed to tell me like, we've just failed. Like we've just failed this mission here. And she looks at me and she's like, who are you? Like what happened? And like, what is going on with you? And like, I'm crying and I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me right now. And uh, that was, it was a pretty kind of surreal moment of, of what it was like to come home um, from a, a pretty intense deployment and, and have a pretty good idea that you're going to turn right around and, and go back and do one. And honestly, that really set the tempo for what my, my time in between deployments uh, was going to be like between my wife and I. I wish I could see that that was kind of the, the first and last episode of things, but uh, it really kind of started this pattern in which my wife and I called it the dark winter uh, because it was just such a really dark and difficult time for me and, and our relationship. So like, how would that, how would you come down off of that? Like, how would you, I mean, I'm not going to say make up, but how, like, what was that like? Was it just keep pushing the, kicking the can down the road a little bit? Like you just you decided to stop hitting the steering wheel and cause you're, you just had like, a, almost like a temper, temper tantrum. Yeah. It was like a massive temper tantrum. Um, I mean, we rode home in silence. I'll say that <laughs> like there wasn't any talking, uh, from that point. Uh, I did get those five fingers the next day. And then I went out and ran 15 miles in them and could barely walk because my shin splints were so bad. So since you were the TL, did you finally decide to, to maybe leave a little bit earlier this time? Or, or how did you, how did you plan your mission there, bro? Yeah, there's some better planning there. You know? <laughs> instead of blaming the, instead of blaming your two IC. Yeah. And I, I think honestly, it was a big wake up call for my wife too, of like, holy shit. Like, this guy has been through a lot and like, this is what we have coming home. And unfortunately back in 2010, I mean, I don't, there really wasn't a lot set up for like spouses and, and like for us to, to kind of integrate back in, it was just like, Hey, welcome back. Like, um, good job. You're going back again. And like, I remember sitting in a briefing and they're like, well, you know, for about the amount of time you were deployed, that's about the amount of time it's going to take for you to kind of feel normal again. And we all started laughing in the room, like, you know who you're talking to? We were deployed for seven months. We're going back to Afghanistan in seven months. So like, what do we get to feel good while we walk onto the plane to go back to Afghanistan? You know, luckily my wife is a very forgiving person. And, you know, we, we tried to continuously kind of work through that, but. So this is kind of foreshadowing of what's going to come later. Cause what, what you're getting at is you're, it's just building. Yeah. And you're about to face something that's much harder. So let, let's talk about your, your second deployment. The, um, the, the second deployment, you know, we were back in Kunduz again, and we got lucky. We were able to work with the same Afghan commandos, uh, this, the same unit of guys. So when we got there, we were really able to hit the ground running, right? It was, we'd already built rapport. We, we kind of worked together. We knew each other very well. And it was this well-oiled machine, right? Um, it was much different in 2011 than 2010. In 2010, the focus in Afghanistan was very much on the south, the Kandahar, Helmand. They did the invasion of Marja. So a lot of the resources and assets were pushed down there. And if you're up in the north, man, kind of good luck, right? Like you didn't, uh, supply line kind of stopped. But by 11, there was definitely some folks that really understood that there's a lot going on up here in the north. And 
uh, we need to pay some more attention to it. So we had a lot more assets, air assets, um, you know, a lot more resources that we needed. And so kind of with that, the expectations were a little bit greater, I felt like, and our op tempo was significantly higher in 2011 than it was in, in 2010. And really, we had one commando battalion for all of northern Afghanistan. And so we had to cover an area that was you know, 600 miles tip to tip with these commandos and really kind of had to pick and choose what areas we were going to focus on. So we spent a lot of that deployment, uh, you know, a lot in Kandus proper. But we also spent a lot in the northwestern part of the country called uh, Faryab province. Uh, there was a SEAL team out there that was embedded in a VSO site. And so we would go out there a lot to kind of clear white space for those guys, go into a lot of the valleys around there. And so seven months into that deployment, we had orders to do a, a valley clearing operation in that northwestern part of Faryab province there. The SEAL team out there had just embedded into a new VSO site, which- So village stability operations. Right. Yeah. And as they embedded in this new site, we were going to do a series of kind of like valley clearing campaigns around this area to give them a little bit of white space. And you know, white space is basically just breathing room. It's kind of an area, a buffer between you and the bad guys there. And so this was a pretty normal mission for us to do at this point. Um, we'd get dropped off at one end of a valley. We'd clear through the valley, you know, go through the series of different mud hut villages talk to the people, try to, to understand what was going on in the area and look for weapons caches. And we get picked up like anywhere between like one to three days later at the other end of a valley. So, so pretty routine for us at this point, like maybe every one out of five times we get into a firefight. And on this day, it was September 25th, 2011. We get dropped off just before the sun comes up. And you know, as I'm taking my first steps, I had this realization that with every step that I take, like this is the first time I've put my foot on this soil. And the people that we'd be going up against that day like know this area like the back of their hand. They've probably left their whole lives in, in this valley. Some of them maybe have never even left it. And so just as I had that kind of thought, we started clearing through the first set of buildings. And an hour into it, you know, the sun's kind of cresting over the mountains and AK-47 fire just starts to ring out. And it's a PKM fire. And one of my teammates in his squad was in a near ambush uh, to the front of us in the valley. And for the next minute, you know, the radios are just going crazy, right? It's kind of the confusion and chaos of the initial part of an attack like that uh, was, was it's just pure chaos. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows where the fire is coming from. You're trying to think about like, what do you need to do? You know, in like a minute's time frame, it seemed like a million different plans were proposed just trying to figure out where, you know, what do we, who needs help? How do we get it to them? And how do we quell this violence as quickly as possible? And so, you know, everybody has the idea of like, hey, this is going to be a really typical um, react to contact drill. You know, we'll have my buddy, he can throw down that base of fire. I'll push through this location here and we'll eliminate these guys and move on. But ultimately decided the captain, you know, it's like, we're going to drop on this location, calls in an aircraft, the aircraft delivers its payload. And you think that's it, right? You're going to drop a 500 pound on this location. That's going to quiet the enemy pretty quickly, right? But uh, after the aircraft delivered that payload, it was really kind of just served to embolden them. And so for the, instead of calming everything down, it seemed to kick it up, right? And so for the next 10 hours, we just went back and forth in this valley, you know, through the heat of the day. And, you know, I think people see like, holy shit, 10 hours. 
And I'm like, yeah, I know. It's, it's not like 10 hours of Black Hawk down and you know, bullets flying every single second. I mean, you'd be out of ammunition in the first five minutes of the fight. You know, it's like this strategic chess match in this valley going back and forth, you know, maneuvering guys. You know, there's points where we kind of called a halt and took a break and the fighting would pick back up again. And then in that kind of 10th hour, I was on a rooftop and there was a building to the, to the north of me separating us was an open field. And ideally, right, we wanted to, to drop on this building because we were taking fire from it, but there was nothing on station at the time. So my teammate on the eastern side raises his hand and he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take it down with my squad. And you can imagine a firefight is already very dangerous, right? But going through an open field like he was going to have to do to get to this compound is like suicidal. So in my infinite wisdom at 27, I said, all right, well, I'll just stand up on this roof and I'll try to draw fire to myself because I think I have less of a chance of getting shot. And my teammates all have the same idea, right? They're taking their VS-17 panels, like a bright colored construction vest, or waving them in the air, trying to, you know, just get this fire to them so they can get across this field. You know, so they make their movement. I stand up. They're literally doing the, the I'm up. They see me. I'm down across this open field, almost like it's like a training thing. And I'm exposing myself. My teammates are exposing themselves. You know, our positions are getting lit up. It's it's working. It's working even better than we want it to. My teammate gets into the compound and my team sergeant calls me and he's like, hey, you need to get the fuck off that roof right now. And so I looked down at the guys that are with me, the Afghans. And I was like, look, if we don't get off this roof, we're going to get fucking shot. And those guys didn't speak any English, but man, they knew what I was saying because they practically jumped off of that roof when I told them that. It's the fastest I'd seen those guys do it move in two years. And I, I was the last guy off the roof. I went around the corner of the building. We were taking fire from a dry riverbed to the front of us. And to get to it, we'd have to walk down a slope. And so I'm you know, trying to use this walk to formulate a plan you know, from the back of the building to the front of the building and say how I'm going to reorganize my squad go down the slope and, you know, potentially start getting in some hand to hand here. And I get to the corner, front corner of the building, and I want to take one last look before I, I start to move forward and expose myself, kind of move out like this uh, for a couple seconds. And next thing you know, it just felt like a sledgehammer came up and hit me in the stomach as hard as I possibly could. And then what? <laughs> you know, so from there, I'm suspended in midair and next thing you know, I'm like my body slams off the ground and the, the pain that I felt was so intense that I was like, man, I think you just been shot, you know, and I'm trying to keep myself conscious because I've never felt pain like this in my entire life. So are you the only American with your squad? Yes. Okay. So that's, that's not ideal. Right. But, but that's, you know, typically how we would roll a lot of times, um, you know, you, you only have so many Americans to go around uh, with you. I'm not questioning your tactics. I'm just saying when you get shot, that's not ideal. No, no, definitely not. Um, but I think in this moment, it was an absolute testament to everybody that interacted with me from the first day that I joined the Army. Because right? when you're in a stressful situation, you revert back to what you know. And because of the people from day one teaching me the right thing, I reverted back to what I knew and it was in my life hung in the balance. It was the right thing. Right. So uh, I keep my composure. I start to tell myself to control my breathing. And then I crawl back. I put my headset on, call my teammates, let them know my location that I've been shot, <clears throat> grab my tourniquet. Cause I think I have this pain in my left leg 
thinking I'd gotten shot in the leg too. And when you think you get shot in the leg, you're like femoral artery, femoral artery, right? So I grab the tourniquet and I start padding up and down my left leg. And I'm like, Kevin, you got a couple minutes to live, but we got to get this going here. And I, I do this a couple of times and I can't find that there's no blood. And so I'm like, well, there's, I didn't get shot in the leg. But as I pad up, up a little bit more, I see just a little bit of blood on my t-shirt. And that's kind of where the bullet went in, just probably about two inches below my body armor. And I realized there's nothing I can do. I'm in, the pain is so intense. I'm still trying to keep myself conscious here. I'm out in the middle of the open. There's nothing I can do but lay there. And a couple of minutes went by, but it felt like years at that point where you're just sitting out in the open during a firefight. And I get back on the radio. I call my teammates again. I'm like, hey, look, man, this is fucking serious. And I'm, I'm, I'm not editing my, uh, you know, these, this is what the calls are, right? Like, you know, dropping a lot of F-bombs and stuff. Um, but you guys need to get to me, man. And the fight had really picked up at that point. And so they were pinned down by some pretty heavy volumes of fire. They were trying to get to me. And after I get off the radio that second time, I look up and, you know, the mission statement of the Green Berets is de oppresso liber, right, to free the oppressed. And when I got off the radio that second time, like, DOL, de oppresso liber, like, that was in my face. Because a guy that I had spent almost two years training, an Afghan soldier, runs out into the open. He risks his life in this firefight, grabs me by my gear. Bullets are flying around us and drags me behind cover behind the building. And like in that moment right there, like the, the Green Beret mission to me made absolute complete sense. And any questions that I possibly had about what I was doing in Afghanistan or the time and effort that I put into the situation was answered completely in that moment there. So he gets me behind the building and my teammates begin to flood in. People are working on me frantically and uh, people are going up to the medic in the background and they're saying, hey, is Kevin going to make it or not? And he's like, I don't know. It looks pretty bad. Little did they know. They, I could hear them while I'm on the ground, like getting worked on. <laughs> it's funny now, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to hear them, right? Yeah. But the uh, guys who hadn't paid me a compliment in years were kind of coming up to me and telling me they loved me and some tears in their eyes. And I'm like, all right, well, this is it, man. Like you've had some close calls before, but you've cashed in all your chips here. And so my teammates stabilized me and they had to go through these open fields They're getting shot at They're returning fire. They finally get me onto the helicopter. So it was about 45 minutes from the time I was shot till I got on the helicopter. And then I had a 15 minute helicopter ride to the field hospital. Uh, once I got there, people started cutting my uniform off. They're asking me all these questions. And the, the surgeon's like, well, do you have any questions? And I said, well, yeah, am I going to live? He's like, I don't know. It looks pretty bad. Hang in there. Do you have any last requests? So I'm like, well, I need you to save the bullet and uh, I, I'm going to die. So I need a Catholic priest to give me my last rites. And so actually, uh, they saved that bullet for me. I have that. and uh, But I'll never forget with that mask just coming down on my face on that table, I'm asking God for forgiveness for my sins and saying goodbye to this world. And then my next recollection is it's four days later. And I asked someone if I had gone to heaven or hell and they're like, neither you're in Launchstuhl regional medical center in Germany. So kind of like a purgatory situation there. So real quick to go back, didn't you, didn't you have a picture of you and your wife as well? I did. I had a picture of my wife and I, and I carried it in my body armor through both deployments. And 
I didn't use it in that moment there, but the prior deployment when we got into a 10 hour firefight um, and I got trapped on a mountaintop, like on my first deployment, uh, I was trapped up there with a squad of commandos. And I remember pulling that, that picture out and looking at it and saying like, this is the last time I'm going to see my wife. And I actually kind of used it as a way to boost morale a little bit. I, I crawled to each one of the commandos and, you know, while we're trapped on this and I, I showed them the picture and I was like, oh yeah, this is my wife and everything. Like, don't worry about the fact that it's 130 degrees and there's a high potential for us to get killed here <laughs> any moment. So. Cause, cause Kimberly's going to be real motivating to them, right? Yes. <laughs> All right. So how did the team end up besides you on that mission and, and what's kind of, I mean, you're obviously out of the fight Yeah. and you're, and we'll get to the recovery and stuff, but I know that, I know there was other losses as well. Yeah. So the team still had four months, uh, on that deployment there. And my hopes were that this was the end of September. There's a fighting season in Afghanistan. It starts in the spring. It goes through the summer and ends like midway through the fall, right? Like people don't want to fight in the wintertime. And my, my, my hope was this was going to be it for selfishly, right? Like one, I didn't want any of my teammates to get hurt. And selfishly, my greatest fear was my team getting to a firefight and me not being there. So like, I just didn't want them to have any action without me there because of the guilt that I would feel for it. So things really slowed down kind of for the team. They were still doing tons of missions. They were still kicking doors down, you know, going in and out, uh, but really wasn't a lot of uh, firefights. And the team was about two weeks from coming home. And I was kind of sitting in uh, the hospital, you know, for one of my thousand visits at that point. And I uh, got a call from my wife and she said, Hey, Ben Wise has been hurt. And I was like, well, what, like what happened to him? I'm thinking like a training accident, four wheelers. We used to love four wheelers and like jumping them and doing crazy shit on those all the time. She's like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I just know that he got hurt. Um, I got called. And then immediately my phone rings at the battalion and they're like, Hey, uh, you, you got to get here as soon as you can. And so with about two weeks before the team was supposed to come home, uh, Ben Sergeant for class, Ben wise, uh, he sustained kind of multiple, uh, multiple gunshot wounds, uh, a lot of trauma to his body. He got hurt on January 9th and for the next six days, you know, struggled and battled through endless surgeries, um, numerous blood transfusions, and ultimately died on January 15th in uh, Germany. And the team came home about uh, two weeks after that. But, uh, you know, Ben was the second boy in his family to die in Afghanistan. His brother, Jeremy, was his Navy SEAL. Uh, he died contracting for the CIA of Hob Chapman. And, you know, to receive that type of news kind of two weeks before the team was supposed to come home, I also found out at that time, too, that I was going to need to have a major extensive experimental surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, kind of all at the same time, uh, was a, a very, very devastating moment there for me. How much guilt did you feel? Immense, immense amount of guilt that I feel like... I've um, like recently really began to kind of like forgive myself and tell myself it's not your fault. Right. Um, I, I used to spend so many nights on my couch with like a drink in my hand and tears on my face, especially early on during the recovery, kind of just questioning God. Like we had three guys get killed on the deployment and a fourth guy killed himself as soon as we got back. And I'm just wondering like, why, like, why did those guys pay the ultimate sacrifice? And I didn't. They're like, I'm suffering right now. 
I'm hurting. My body hurts like hell. I can barely walk. I have no clue what the future holds for me. Uh, why? Why is all of this happening to me? So it was, it was very hard, especially in the initial stages. And I mean, we're, you know, nine years removed and it's, it's still something that I think about. And I've like recently allowed myself to let it go. Right. And have like a memory without emotion is wisdom. And that's what I'm trying to have a lot of these memories be, not just be like so emotionable, tangible things that are so poignant to me, but have them be these memories and these, these learning experiences and these lessons, but still allow me to kind of go forward in my life. So how far, how far along are you? I think I'm a lot farther along than I was originally. Um, I still think that there's some work for me to do and something I kind of work on every single day. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, you see my office right here, I had an epiphany the other day. I was like, man, you have degrees from Harvard and MIT. Uh, they're somewhere in your basement. You don't even know where they are. Uh, but yet you have your 2009 uh, Filipino J set uh, certificate on the wall, bud. Like, <laughs> it's all about priorities, bro. You know, <laughs> I was like, you know, maybe, um, maybe throw some other stuff up on the wall. <laughs> maybe like, you know, I got, uh, I got this picture I'm going to put up right here. It's my first go ruck event there in Colorado. So that's yep. going to go up there. But I think like even recognizing things like that were a big step for me there. So I want to go, I want to go back to Kimberly. Yeah. I want to go back to what we were foreshadowing before five finger death punch, the temper tantrums. Yeah. And then you want to think about how much stuff got piled on top of that. You lost teammates, won the suicide, you're shot. You're, you're in a recovery that is, is going to take you a really long time. Not like six months and you're patched up and it's good. Like we'll get into some of those details, but life was not that good for, for you two. Like, imagine that, right? Like you're in a terrible spot personally and your marriage isn't in a very good spot. And yeah, my marriage was like disintegrating in front of my face. And this was all happening even before I got shot, right? I, we call that, we jokingly refer to that seven month period as the dark winter um, in between deployments. You know, it started with the vibrant five finger thing and there's so many other things that happened. The amount of drinking that was done was just crazy. Um, I used to say like my wife and I were just like drinking buddies rather than husband or wife. And, you know, I was the one dragging her down with me. And I think she was kind of just doing it to somewhat be a part of, of my life. So I, I, I think things were, were starting before that. Cause I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't be home. I couldn't mentally be home. Cause I'm like, dude, you gotta go back to Afghanistan. Again, if you let yourself down, you let your guard down, you're going to let your teammates down. Somebody's going to get killed. Right. So I, I couldn't do that. And you know, then you go back on this deployment and it's a, it's a violent deployment, right? You're losing people, you're hurt, you're, you're changed for the rest of your life. And it was this moment for, for her and I, we knew my time on the team was done, right? We knew that the, the, the Contico boxes were not going to get dragged out again every couple of weeks and packed up and me, you know, having to leave. Like the honeymoon periods that we would have were going to be over. This was reality. We're going to be together at this point. So a lot of things that had festered really started to come out. And so within, I don't know, a week or two of being out of the hospital, she's giving me a sponge bath. And I'm like, look, do you want to just get a divorce here? And my wife is tough, man. She's stubborn. She's a New Englander. She's held this thing together. So her response was, no asshole. I'm giving you a fucking sponge bath right now. <laughs> if I wanted a divorce, do you think I'd be doing this? Like, were you serious? I was dead serious, man. 
Like how much time did you spend thinking about that? Uh, you know, probably a couple like weeks at that point. And it was for a couple of reasons, right? It was like, we had grown apart quite a bit. And w- when you're not growing, you're not together, you're, you're growing and you're typically growing apart. And essentially like we had these emotional barriers up with one another because we could never depend on one another because we were always gone apart from each other. So like, that's just how we kind of knew how to live our lives. And you have this, all these issues that kind of festered and coming up. And then I see myself as like this guy, I'm like, I'm a cripple. Like I can't walk, you know, I, the road to recovery is going to be terrible. And there's just part of me that was saying like, I don't want to drag her down in this whole process. Like I want her, like, I, I feel like I had dragged her down enough already and I didn't want to drag her down anymore. And so that was a, a big impetus for me, I think, to, to throw that out there. Thank God she said no, because I don't know what would happen to me. So how do you start to, to kind of turn this around, right? Because look, I mean, let's fast forward to where we are now, right? I mean, you still have a switch, right? It's like, you're never not a green beret, yeah. you know? you can't ever take that out of yourself. And, and yet you're doing really well. You and you, you seem good. You seem happy. Your kids, like you're mobile, you're, you're out kind of finding new challenges. You're working, you're productive, but let's not, let's not pretend it just all of a sudden one day it's like, Oh, okay. You don't want to divorce me. Okay, cool. Like, I, I guess we're good then. Right. I guess this is the happy ending, right? Okay. <laughs> right. It's like there's there's pills and there's booze and there's, you know, addiction and there's survivor's guilt and there's rock bottom low ass moments on a couch crying. All of these things. I mean, you know, some of those I know happen, but I can like that, that those are normal, right? Those are normal when when you go through the kind of stuff that you've been through that that a lot of us have been through. Right. And like what What's kind of the progression in all of this? So I think it's, it's in that really difficult year, I think of like 2012 into 2013, it's, it's three things that I encourage everybody to do and they're going through difficult times personally and professionally. Ask for help, receive help and give help, right? Pretty early on, I realized like there was something up and I, I wasn't gonna be able to get out of this on my own. So I, I sought out the psychologist from the first special forces group. That, that was my first incident of like really starting to try to take my mental and emotional health seriously. Uh, I asked for help. Uh, six months after that surgery, I'm still on pills, right? I left the Mayo Clinic and I was on 12 pills of Dilaudid, 12 Percocets and two Valium, right? 26 pills a day. The surgery was so extensive, I needed it. But after a while, that kind of became my crutch. It was, you know, two, three, four pills a day. Couldn't, couldn't let those go. My wife sits me down right? Here's my wife again, right? Saving the day, being stubborn. And she's like, look, man, is this what you're going to do with the rest of your life? And then she pulls out the Trump card and she's like, you think this is any way to honor Ben Wise? She's like, whoa, like that's like sticking the knife in, right? Like she knows how to motivate me there. I mean, that motivates me, yeah. right? Right. Cause, cause that, that's what all of us carry with us. We all carry it with, we owe more than we can ever possibly give back. Right. Like, you know, I beat myself up like, Oh, you, you can do more here. You can do more there. Like give more, you know, and, and right. we all do on about varying things. It's, it's never, it's never going to be enough. And yet if, if you're, if you're fighting the good fight to honor them, then, you know, like it, it feels a lot better than when, when you're obviously not Yeah. right. Like live a life worthy of their sacrifice. Exactly. Instead of like Netflixing your wife away, you know, this is kind of what, what I was thinking. And, uh, 
You know, Kevin, I'm sitting here listening to you, and you said something 20 minutes ago, but it it was a key point, and it's a point that I think flows throughout this dialogue, and it's something that flows throughout the community, and it's the sense of being worthy as an individual. When you're on a team, you hit it dead on the money. When you get into a situation in combat, you're looking to your right and to your left. Your reactions, your fear is gone not completely, but your fear is controlled, what you're worried about is being worthy to the guy to your left and the guy to your right. That's the way it always is. That's why you want to go back to the team, even though you're laying in a bed in a landstool or, or wherever, you want to get back to that team. That's about being worthy because you are not upholding your end. And it falls into levels because you've got that issue of worthiness with your team. You want to prove to the team and you want to be worthy of your team. You also have a a level of worthiness to your wife and to your family. You want to be worthwhile to them and worthy and meet their expectations and support them the way you know you should. And that's what's so hard for all of us that have been through this process. It's that sense of worthiness. And and you'll, you'll carry it with you the rest of your life. Sorry, that's just the way it is. But it's understanding that and then making allowances and making adaptations to show your worth as a team member, as a husband, and as a father. And that is so important. It's a journey. You've come a long ways and the journey won't ever quit. But it's a great journey to take because it's, it's one of the most worthwhile that you can possibly make. Yeah, definitely agree with that. So like, that's the receive help, right? It was the angriest I'd ever been with my wife, but she was right. And I was angry because she was right. So I stopped taking pain meds and started studying for grad school, right? To, to live that life that was worthy of their sacrifice. I was going to aim really high, right? I was going to apply to like Harvard's and MIT's. And I think the third one is give help. Like when you're in a dark spot and you're struggling, you say to yourself, well, how could I possibly help anybody else right now? That's actually the perfect time to help someone. Because it's going to give you the sense of purpose. It's going to give you this clarity. You might even say to yourself, well, I don't have it as bad as I thought that I did. (laughs) I'm helping this person out. And I had the opportunity to work with other soldiers who were wounded in recovery. I mean, as bad as things were for me, it was still going great. And, you know, to work with these guys, but it kept my moral compass straight. Because I'm like, I wanted to take pain meds, but these guys looked up to me. I'm like, I can't, I can't do that. Right. So that asking for help, that receiving help and that giving help really put everything back on track for me. You know, I, I applied to Harvard Business School, Harvard Kennedy School and MIT. I got rejected by both Harvards and waitlisted at MIT. And so I kind of, you know, I did the Green Beret thing. I uh, bought a plane ticket from Seattle to Boston. I flew across the country. I walk up to the admissions office unannounced and I say, uh, well, thanks for the spot on the waitlist. Now, what do we got to do to get in here? <laughs> and uh once they took their finger off the panic button, they sat down with me and <laughs> three months later I got in and I swallowed my pride and I reapplied to Harvard Kennedy School and got accepted that second time around. And I think a, a common thread for me in this whole story from the moment that I was shot is just lessons in humility, right? And forcing me to walk a mile in other people's shoes that I wouldn't have normally walked if I didn't have these experiences. And because of that, it humbled me. It taught me empathy. It showed me what other people struggle through and what they go through. And now I'm looking back on it and I'm like, well, this is, this is the best thing that's ever happened to you. 
because it's given you this perspective on life, gives you the ability to inspire other people. It's, it's, it's provided the challenges that you need in your life to become the person that you are today. I've yet to hear that story about anyone ever walking up to an admissions, <laughs> an admissions office unannounced, right? Yeah. I'm just here. To, I'm here to talk about this. <laughs> That's a, they, they're like, when, when prospective students have come in, they're like, Kevin, we loved that you did that. Please don't tell anybody about that story. <laughs> okay, we'll make sure to uh, not edit that out. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, it helps when you have a kind of a, a story to match. And it's still, you, you got to kind of pull it off. I had a six-hour plane ride from Seattle to Boston to rehearse everything that I was going to say and the points I was going to make. So, um, you know, really just kind of did the Green Beret thing, went out there, did that, started enlisting help from people and getting all these you know, people that were my advocates for me and got in and you, you kind of think like, all right, like, great. Like I'm going to get out of the army. I'm in an MIT. I have the world kind of by the balls and everything's going to be fine. But, uh, turns out, right. There's still more, more mountains out there to climb with your transition. I mean, I had about a week in between getting out of the military, moving across the country. We had our first kid the week before midterms in our first term of business school. And, I just was in class. I didn't really know what to talk to my classmates about. Like, how do I relate to them in a manner that they understand what I'm talking about? And the, the class, the speed of the class was kind of like the first time you go in the shoot house. Like the shoot house is just so like, oh my God, this is so fast. How am I ever going to be able to do this? Like I felt that way in the classroom, like business terms coming. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? I don't know what's going on. I need to go on Investopedia and spend three hours looking up definitions. And it was just the hardest I had ever worked to get below average results. Like I never wanted to quit anything more in my life than that first term of business school. And then even that fall, that winter, I go to interview for my internships for the summer and I get rejected by 16 out of 17 companies. And the only reason why I got that one, one job was with Amazon. And it's because I got interviewed by a former uh, force recon colonel that kind of saw my resume, knew what I was capable of doing but said, son, you got to work on your interviewing. It's terrible, <laughs> right? Like, and, and that was a big wake-up call for me there of understanding I, I needed to do a lot of self-reflection, right? If 16 out of 17 companies say no to you, it's not them that needs to change, it's you, right? I had to, I had to go back and take those lessons. I needed to ask for help, right? I needed help in the classroom with my interviewing, right? I, I needed to receive help. People wanted to help me and I needed to you know, continue to help other people out. But I think the first thing I had to learn was like, I didn't own misery and suffering. I wasn't the only person in this world that experienced hardship. And I had to stop comparing my experiences to other people's experiences. Like I look at my classmates and be like, why the fuck are you having a problem today? You know what I've been through? I had this entitlement, right? Like, you know, I was owed things because of what I went through. And I had to learn that I didn't own this misery. I didn't own this suffering. Other people suffered too. And I had to change my mindset. I had to be happy that I had the experiences that I had because it gave me great perspective. Rich talks a lot about this, the, the need to reinvent yourself, which he's done several times throughout his career. And, and when you get into to veteran transition stuff, I see this over and over again. There is this, I mean, Green Berets are pretty good entrepreneurs by and large, right? If you believe in the mission, right? Of whatever, whatever the mission might be, hey, lots of problem solving. Hey, you know, got to think on your feet. You got to, it's just all the time. It never stops, but it's a different battlefield 
And, and you have to figure out how to do that. I mean, it, it the, the problem comes is when you're getting the, the sort of the barrage on pick your, pick your social media dopamine hit, right. About you just need to fix your resume and you just need to, you know, make sure your LinkedIn is tight, you know, stuff like that. And and then it's, that's the silver bullet of the, of the day, right. Get out there and make your first millions, you lazy asshole. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like go on the cocktail circuit and whatever. I mean, like, I remember I was in the same boat with you in business school where I didn't really want to socialize all that much because I didn't really want the questions about basically anything. And so it was one of those things like, well, how do I, how do I do this? And it just, it took time. Like you've got to, you've got to make a little bit of effort, but it, it takes time. You, you have to just kind of ease into it. And it's, it's not easy though. No, it's it, like you said, it's an effort. And I think that was a realization that I came to I was like, for you, kind of like physically, mentally, emotionally, right? If you want to continue to get better, you're going to have to work at it. It's just like anything in life. If you want great results, then you have to work at it. I needed to get back to interviewing and talking to people and learning how to tell my story in a manner in which other people understood it, accepting that criticism. I needed to put the self-work in. I needed to do my yoga, my meditation, my gratitude journaling, you know, all of these things to... It was going to kind of allow me to, to let go of some of the demons. And I think it's a, it's a point I want to make here too. Like when I was going through like that kind of 2012, 2013, really dark times, really uncertain for the future. Hey, Jason, you were a person that I looked up to. I didn't know you back then, but I saw everything that you were doing with Go Ruck. My first reaction was, this guy is insane. <laughs> getting people to go rocking like this guy's done. I love this guy. I love like how he's doing it. God bless him. He's going to learn from this and come up with another idea and, and hit it big with that one. <laughs> but uh, I, I looked at you and I, I, you know, I'd read a lot about you and like, all right, Georgetown MBA and he's starting a company and a former Green Beret. And I'm like, like, this is what you can be if you don't give up. And, you know, to have that type of a role model, like, you know, following you and your success, especially in those dark periods of time, like that's what I needed. I needed to see another Green Beret that was out there doing these things and shaking it up. And, you know, that that provided a lot of hope for me. Well, don't, I mean, don't feel bad, Kevin. We've all had the same thoughts about Jason when we first <laughs> meet him. Who the, who the hell is this guy and where did he get this damned idea? Lucky. <laughs> this guy insane. <laughs> oh, I love you guys. Thank you. First off, thank you. You know, the... I guess behind the scenes though, at that time, I, I was very much not in, in the world's greatest place, right? It was just kind of keep moving forward, keep giving back, keep trying to honor my roots. You know, I mean, I, I just, I wanted, I don't seek approval very often, right? I don't, I don't just blank, throw out blanket. Cause I think it's a terrible way to live your life where if you're, if you, you're out in the world, hoping that the world is going to validate your every movement or your every action, like don't give the world that kind of power over you. Now, the people that do have that kind of power over me are the special forces community, my family, right? Especially, you know, the more personally close within those, right? Like Emily, huge sway, Rich, huge sway, you, other Green Berets that I know, that I trust, that I respect, that I believe in, right? Uh, opinions really, really matter to me. And at that time, it's, it's just, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't like, oh, I've got this all figured out now. It was just a slow, steady process of, of bringing people together in the real world and exercising and 
there was social fitness to it. There was kind of, oh, let's pick a great challenge and let's do, let's do that together. It was a different way to give back that, that was my own kind of therapy from, from various degrees of loss that I, that I'd experienced as well. And so, you know, thanks again. Sorry, we got a visitor. If you want to say yeah, hello. We want to say hello. Hey, you want to say, what is that right there? What's on his shirt there? Go Ruck. Yeah. <laughs> That's Go Ruck. Says America. That's right. Were you, uh, were you carrying your Go Ruck bag this weekend? Did we go for a Ruck this weekend? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Was that fun? You like outdoor time with dad? Uh -huh. So the, uh, the family that rucks together stays together. Yeah, that's pretty great. All right. Hey, so, uh, I'll be out in a little bit. Okay. Just a few more minutes with dad. We'll wrap, we'll wrap it up. All right. So it's, it's been a long journey. I mean, I feel like Kimberly's been your rock. Still is. You know, she's getting her PhD right now. And part of the reason why I got two masters, because she had two. I had to keep an even playing field, but I'm calling it a PhD. We're done. This is it. She's better than me. I admit it. She wins. And, and not a, she was always winning, but now you accept defeat. Yeah, I just did <laughs> 36. I'm humble now. All right. So let's, let's kind of transition to Green Beret Foundation, other ways to give back, because this is one of those kind of continuations, right? Of serve others. And, and you think that you're not worthy to go back to, to riches kind of, we're always going to be through that. And people start to, the older you get and the more that you sort of do outside of, outside of just your past, right? Keep reinventing yourself you'll get a phone call every once in a while. And it's like, Hey, would you like to do this? Or, Hey, would you like to do that? And I remember one of the guys on the GBF board, it was a couple of years before you came on and he's like, do you want to join the GBF board? And I'm like, ah, you know, like you guys got someone better, right? There's always, there's always, Oh, I'm sure you've got someone better lined up. And you know, it's, it's a rewarding thing. I mean, over 60% of special operations casualties since nine 11 have been green berets. Like, think about that. That, that means all the SEALs, Delta Force, Marine Special Operations, MARSOC, you know, all of the, the PJs, the Air Force, stuff like that. I mean, it, they're, they're 60% are Green Berets. And that's, it's, there's just a lot of deployments. They've been the workhorses that we've been the workhorses of Special Operations since. And so the other part is that you, you say yes. If, if someone's like, can I nominate you for this? It's like, sure, if you guys are stupid enough to vote me in, then, then cool. Um, but- yeah you know, it's, it's always kind of a similar journey. And, you know, you were, you were well known within the, the Green Bray Foundation because you had gone through the whole, whole deal. So what does that mean? And, and just other ways that you inspire other people with fitness challenges or running the marathon or TB12 and stuff, all, all that you're kind of the life that you're leading now as inspirational, but back to the, the GBF, like what, what part is service in your life now? That's the big question that I'm getting at. One of the things that I had to come to grips with also was that um, I, I thought the only way to serve was through the military. And, you know, I, I'm like, well, this is taken from me. Now, how do you serve? And when I went to the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, I was introduced to a lot of classmates there. And I think the biggest takeaway that I, I got was, you know, the being introduced to these classmates and seeing what they had been doing prior to grad school. And it really started to understand there that there's so many ways to serve your country, to serve the world, to serve the greater good outside of the military. Just because somebody wasn't in the military doesn't mean that they were not serving. And so that kind of opened up my eyes to say, like, you can still serve. You're never going to be in the military again. But service is, is something that's just a part of you. And it's something you can do the rest of your life. And so I, I've, for me, kind of at, at that 
point wanted to make sure that service was always going to be a big part of my life. I wanted to give back because so many people gave back to me. You know, I'm where I'm at in my life right now, not purely because of me, but thousands of people that, that gave back to me. And I wanted to make sure that when other Green Berets or service members came back in the condition that I was in, especially that they knew that there was people out there that had their back. Like the Green Beret Foundation was always one phone call away from me. Anything my wife and I needed, you know, they were there for us. And to have that level of support, it, it takes a level of stress off of you, right? So that you can go back to focusing on your life, to healing, to focusing on your marriage and not worrying about some of these little things there. And so for the rest of my life, I want to continue serving and, in some capacity, kind of always helping people out and, it's, you know, taking the form of being on the board right now. Uh, also had the opportunity to keynote speak kind of throughout the country, try to use my social media as a form of service to everyone. All right. So I got my last question for you, which is, is basically like, what, what's your advice to the next generation, right? We talk about glorious professionals, right? Th those kinds of people of diverse backgrounds, a little bit, a little bit different at times, you know? develop their trade, and then they serve. They serve a cause greater than themselves. And, and what's, your, what's your advice? I think my, my greatest piece of advice that I can give to the next generation is fail early and often. Get out there and get after it. You're going to make mistakes. Like just completely get that into your mind and don't let that stop you. Go out there, get after it, make those mistakes, but most importantly, learn from those mistakes. Right? Try not to make that same mistake twice. And the earlier you can do that, the earlier you can adopt the mentality, you're going to really start to understand there's really nothing you can do. Because most people will just not go out and do things because they're afraid of what the outcome is going to be. They're scared. They're scared of making a mistake. But if you do that so many times or you just keep making mistakes and you're learning from those mistakes and you get better and you're pushing yourself even more, like what you're going to be able to achieve in your life is going to be remarkable. You know, Kevin, uh, you, you've been through such a journey you, your family, your team, your friends. But one quote that you had just really stands out to me, and that is, an experience is worth nothing unless you share it. And I think that is so accurate and true. It doesn't have to be a good experience. As a matter of fact, sometimes bad experiences are the best teachers. Now, we don't wish that on anybody. We certainly don't wish what happened to you on anybody. But for you to bring out that experience and share it, is so important. And that's service. That's serving the community, it's serving the nation, and it's serving a global community. And I think that is so important. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having me on the show here. Now, and go enjoy your uh, T-Swift ice cream party. Oh yeah, we got a lot of dancing to do here. Yeah, mix it up. <laughs> yeah. All right, man, go have fun. Thanks for All your right. time. Later. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Well, Kevin's at the dance party. It's just me and you now, Rich. The ice cream party. <laughs> yeah. Is that a good dude or what? Oh, he's a great guy. He is a great guy. And for, for all that he's been through, all that his family's been through, he has such a great attitude about helping others. That is so important in his life. And you, can, you, you hear that as you talk to him. He's still a team member. Yeah, he's not on a team. He's not on an ODA right now, but he's still a team member. And he always will be. And that attitude, that positive movement forward, he's not going backwards ever. He's going forward. Well, I mean, I think the point is, is that he got to the point where he could keep going forward 
because he wanted to help others. It starts with a single, hey, let me go visit these guys that are even worse than I am, you know? And you start to realize, well, look, I got, I, I am worthy. Yeah. There comes a realization. You don't join the army or the military for pure service. There's, there's a lot of reasons you join. Revenge, retribution, in his words, challenge. Doing cool stuff. Yeah. But at some point in time, it dawns on you that you're really in a life of service. That's what it's all about. You're not serving yourself anymore. You're serving others. You're serving your team, your unit, your organization. You're serving your community, your country, and you're serving the world in many instances. And then you can turn that around and provide service to others that have been in those dark places that you've been. And that's just even so much better. It, it sounds almost counterintuitive though, right? But if you, you figure out when you're not doing that well, you find some way to serve something else, right? It, is the, it goes back to, are you worthy or are you not? And you have this perception that's not reality. You quit worrying about yourself and you worry about somebody else. That helps you as an individual. It helps your mindset because it puts you to the rear and moves them to the front. And that's why service becomes so important. And you understand that I'm here not for me. I'm here for him, for her, for them, whoever it might for, be. For a dog. For me, like for Java. Yeah, you know? And yeah. like in one thing leads to another. And then yeah. it sort yeah. of turned, you know, my my business school experience, which Kevin and I have a lot of parallels, which we've spent many a late night discussing. Yeah. And you know, I was in business school and didn't really, even my life is in crash and burn. I didn't tell anybody I was still basically married, although we're going through divorce, all, all this, just weird. It was just, so then I'm hiding lots of stuff. I'm having to lead this kind of second life. That's yeah. It, it, it was just a mess. And, you know, I mean, it started out kind of with the dog Java. And then I actually came up with this event called war stories and free beer. It was the first event that we kind of ever did. And it was basically in, you know, it was, there was just war stories and free beer. It's pretty self-explanatory, but it was in the, one of the, the big rooms at business school. And it was like, I was getting all these questions about, you know, I was in special forces. Oh, were you in the Marines? I'm like, no, I love the Marines, but I was not in the Marines. Right. But, you know, and I'm like, man, you, you, you guys are really smart and, and we're in the nation's capital. The Pentagon is right over there. And we kind of need to know these things. And, and you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Your, your life is so much different than mine. And I was like, Kevin, I, I didn't, all these business school terms and stuff, it just gave me a big giant headache, you know? I've been there. I mean, I, I went, I, when I was getting my MBA, I was number one, I was older than everybody else by a considerable amount. I was learning the terms because I had not been using those terms in the military. I was fending off the questions about the military because I didn't want to talk about it at that time because I was reinventing myself. So I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about something new, something that I've never done before. And so I've same, same issues. The mistake you make when you try to reinvent yourself or when you're forced to reinvent yourself is you think that you have to just cut, cut it loose. Right. Like, oh, this, this passing, like those are your roots. You can't, it's, no matter what, you can't run away from them. It's still you. Yeah. It's still you, no matter what you do. But you have to process how you're going to deal with them. And right. there's, what I found is that we, we kind of all need to, and this isn't just for military folks, we need to kind of take it a little bit easier on ourselves. 
Yeah. Like give ourselves just a little bit of time. Some, and Some time and some effort to it. Mm-hmm. You, you have to put effort towards it. You know, you have to think about how you want to address your previous self, because it is a, a, it's a major part of you, whatever you've done. And then how are you going to go forward? So how do you want to, what do you want that narrative to be of where you were and where you're going? How, how do they juxtapose each other? Yes. And so back to kind of Kevin's narrative, I, I, I find him just an excellent ambassador for the Green Berets, for America, for service, for recovery, for veterans, for sort of turning your life around. For transition. Transitions. That's what I'm getting yeah. at. Right. And I mean, you know, you got it from like, he didn't have to, to serve. And I mean, I completely get why he did what he did. Right. Joined up the army in a time of war. And, you know, he's not unique. He's not unique. America inspires so many great people to serve the values that we hold dear. Sure. And it's people like Kevin and, and he'll, if, if, he, if you're listening to this, Kevin, you're not unique and you know it, right? Like that's what's so great though, is because you get all these other, these other people who share that as well. And they're like, of course, I'm going to raise my right hand and, and serve our country. And they've always been there, you know, from the Spanish-American War to, to World War I, to World War II, to Korea, to Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. All the way through our history, there have been those that have stood up and raised their hand. And Kevin... God bless him is in that long line of service. And, and so, you know, he has, a, he has a lot to say. He has an important perspective and he's, he's good. And I, I really think he's, he finds his voice even more as I've gotten to know him over the past few years. He just keeps finding it more and more and more. And like, just watch out. Right now, he's, he's, sometimes there's the T-Swift ice cream dance parties that are, you know, he's got to learn how to juggle some stuff from time to time. Like, don't we all, you know, and I think he's doing a great job of it. Like he's, he's just, he's in a good place. Yes, he is. And, and that's, that's one of those things where I'm really passionate on this show about showing people's lives and the arcs of their lives, because I have yet to meet the person who's truly in a good place that didn't pay something to get there. And I don't, I'm not talking about a damn dime here. I'm talking about it costs them it cost them hard times. Sure. It cost them asking others for help. It cost them their ego, their pride. It cost them all sorts of stuff to get to where they are. And we didn't, we didn't spend a lot of time on this or really any time, but he talked about humility and that's what you find. And that makes you a lot happier than thinking that you're so great all day because you will let yourself down when you start thinking you're so great. Just wait. Well, you know, four, four of his, key pillars are our humility, resilience, a positive attitude towards life, perseverance, continuing to push forward and finding a sense of purpose, and faith. And I think he, he brings those together in a mix that makes him and those around him and those that he helps stronger each day. Yeah, so it's, it's an honor. Uh, I'm, on the, I'm on the board with him. We're kind of on a, on a team like that. He's the guy you want on your team and he's a good friend. So check him out on, on social. Also, you know, a cause near and dear to our hearts is also the Green Bray Foundation. Check that out. And as always, we, we thank you for tuning in and for your listenership. And if you've enjoyed this, please tell a friend about it. Thanks. And we'll, we'll talk to you next time.